back in Psalm 25, we started this section, and the reason why we uh, believe it to be a section is because Psalm 25 and Psalm 34 resemble each other, and so they seem like bookends of a section. Both Psalm 25 and 34 are acrostic psalms, so each verse of these psalms begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet in order, with just a couple of exceptions. Both of those psalms also end uh, with a verse that break uh, the acrostic pattern and uh, talk about the redemption of God, and so it just seems like these are very much mirror images one of another, and so this uh, is the end of this section of psalms, and we have just seven more psalms uh, left in book one after this. Uh, So we'll walk through the next few, over the next few weeks, and then we're going to pause for Advent. We're going to stay in the Psalms, but for the four Sundays of Advent, we're going to be looking at some Advent Psalms, Psalms that have a particular focus on the coming of Christ, and that will help um, our hearts focus on Christ and the significance of His coming through the Advent season, and then uh, we'll come back uh, at the after the new year and uh, begin or excuse me finish uh, book one of the Psalms in uh, January in the first part of February. So uh, with that though, let's read uh, Psalm 34 together. And uh, since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out, and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord. And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, when we looked at Psalm 32 a couple of weeks ago, we said then that one of the reasons we share testimonies is so that other people can have the chance to experience for themselves the same joy that we have experienced. And Psalm 34 is another testimony psalm given by David to us so that we would learn 
from his experience. Now, for the first time in a long time, we're actually told in the text what occasion David wrote this psalm about. We're told right there at the very beginning of Psalm 34 that this was written of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So we don't have to guess why David was so excited about God. We know exactly why. Uh, Abimelech is a title given to several kings in the Bible. In this case, it's referring to Achish, the king of Gath. And uh, to, to remind ourselves of that story, let's turn uh, to 1 Samuel 21 to kind of give us the context of why David wrote this psalm. 1 Samuel 21. So at this point in the book, David has just received confirmation from Jonathan that Saul is after him. He is wanting to kill him. So David is on the run for his life. Uh, he, has, he has fled, and he first stopped in the tabernacle, and there the priest gave him some of the holy bread to eat for nourishment, and he also gave him the sword of Goliath to defend himself. And so David takes the sword of Goliath, and he goes to the hometown of Goliath, Gath, in the land of the Philistines. So there David is. He goes to the king of Gath, and let's pick up the story, 1 Samuel 10, uh, 21, verses 10 through 15. And David rose and fled that day from Saul, and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? So we see in this story that, uh, actually keep, keep on reading to uh, chapter 22 in verse 1, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Um, so David had fled to Gath for safety. He, he fled to Gath. Goliath's hometown. So you know things must be bad for David in Israel if he is going to Goliath's hometown for a better, safer experience than in Israel. But as it turns out, it, he wasn't actually safe at all. He was, hoping, he was hoping that he was going to be able to hide out anonymously, but when he goes to the king of Gath, uh, King Achish, um, he, he was recognized. Uh, he realized, uh, King Achish realized that David was that Israelite champion from, you know, the, the greatest hits of Israel, that song that's always playing, that's topping the charts about how David killed his tens of thousands, that was written about David's victory over Goliath and over the Philistines. Uh, so David was found out, he realized he was in danger, he feared for his life, and he needed a way to escape. So he decided to pretend he was insane. He scratches the doors of the gate. He's foaming at the mouth. And King Achish looks at him and he's just like, I, I want nothing to do with this guy. And so he sends David away. And, and so through that event, David was delivered. He escaped with his life. And David gets out of that situation and he thinks the saints have to hear about this. My people need to learn from what just happened to me. And so he wrote Psalm 34. He wrote Psalm 34. He gave it to the people of God to sing in worship so they could glorify the deliverer, so that they could glorify the God who delivered David and the God who can deliver them. So this is David's message to us today. It's the heart of his message that he wants us to hear today, and that is to glorify the Deliverer, because the Deliverer who delivered him is the Deliverer who can deliver us as well. Glorify the Deliverer. Well, how do we glorify the Deliverer? 
Let's turn to Psalm 34, if you're still in 1 Samuel 21, and let's look at three different ways we can glorify the Deliverer. First of all, boast in the Deliverer. Boast in the Deliverer. David begins his worship by blessing Yahweh in verse 1. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. The kind of worship that Yahweh deserves is continued, unceasing, all times worship. You know, we are created worshiping. We are always worshiping something. And Yahweh is worthy of every second of that worship. So David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He continues in verse 2 by boasting in Yahweh and saying, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. When Yahweh works like he did for David, he redirects our boasting. Notice, after all that happened to David, he doesn't boast in his clever escape strategy. He doesn't boast in how clever he was to come up with a plan to get out of there alive. He says instead, no, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. And with that boasting, David invites the humble to hear him. To humble, to hear his boast and be glad with him and boast with him in Yahweh. You know, the essence of humility is not self-deprecation, it's worship. The essence of humility is not self-deprecation, it's worship. When you spend all of your time talking about how bad you are, you are just as self-absorbed as the person who spends all their time talking about how good they are. The humble don't spend their time talking about themselves at all. The humble spend their time talking about God, how good He is to them, how great He is in His character and in His work. And they enjoy when others do the same. Let the humble hear and be glad. And so then David turns to the saints and he says in verse 3, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Uh, this, is, this is the essence of a worship leader's job. Whether that worship leader is a singer or a preacher or a prayer leader or something else, this is what a worship leader does. He says, here's this amazingly great God. C- come with me. Let's, let's magnify this God like you would magnify these magnificent stars with a telescope. Let's explore the magnificence of this God. Let's make his name higher than any other. And it's not just a, you know, a worship leader on a platform in front of a congregation. This is the essence of what it means to be a disciple maker. To say, our Lord is great. Come glorify him with me. God has done great things for me and I want him to do great things for you. Come magnify the Lord with me. Well, as David then invites the people to declare that Yahweh is worthy, he then goes on to tell them why Yahweh is worthy of worship. And he does that by sharing his testimony of what happened, his testimony of what happened in Gath. Uh, And he does so beginning in verses 4 and 5. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So here we get a peek at what was happening behind the scenes in 1 Samuel 21, behind the events that we are specifically told about in 1 Samuel 21. That text told us David was afraid, but Psalm 34 tells us what David did with his fears. He sought Yahweh, and that's what we must do with our fear, too. When you're afraid Don't go to your war room to strategize. Go to your prayer room to plead with the Lord. David entrusted his fears to Yahweh. And when he did, David was delivered. Uh, He put all his eggs in the basket of God's sovereign deliverance. And that did not end in his shame. 
it did not end in him regretting that decision. It ended in his deliverance. He was not ashamed. Instead, he was radiating with joy in God. And he says, if we will look to this God, if we will boast in this God, if we will trust in this God, we too will glow with the joy of his deliverance. David continues in verses 6 and 7. He says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Again, David recalls his desperate situation that he found himself in and how Yahweh heard him and saved him. Again, David didn't see himself as clever and confident in this situation. He was poor and needy. He was delivered not by his genius. He was delivered because God heard him. And this deliverance is what all who fear Yahweh can expect. God even sends his angel to guard his people. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. When God sets his love on you, he commits an army of angels to guard your salvation. That is how great the deliverance of our God is. So boast in this deliverer. Boast in the God who would deliver poor, needy people like you and me. Do you boast in the God who delivered you? Scripture says, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10, 17. For those who are regularly around you, what will they hear you boasting in? Will they hear you boast about how much you know? Will they hear you boast about how well you obey God? Will they hear you boast about how good you are? Or will they hear you boast in the God who delivered you? Will they hear you boast in how merciful and kind God has been to you? Will they hear you boast in how good God is? If you just practically want to be prepared to boast in the Lord, let me encourage you to do exactly what David did and literally write out what God has done for you. And that maybe begins with uh, how he saved you, may begin before he saved you. And then even after that, ever since, write out what God has done for you. Think through the ways that God has shown you goodness. Put it down on paper and then feast your eyes on how faithful God has been to you over moments and days and months and years and decades. Meditate on God's kindness toward you. His kindness that he showed you at those moments when you were at your poorest, your neediest, your most desperate, and you cried to him and, and cast yourself on his mercy and magnify him for that. But don't stop there. Don't just boast in the Lord in the privacy of your own soul. Tell others. Tell others in a way that says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Tell people who don't know the Lord so that they might be invited to come and experience the same goodness you've experienced. Tell people who do know the Lord so they can be glad and rejoice with you. Tell your community group tonight. Boast in the Lord and how good he is. Boast in the deliverer. That's just one way that we can glorify the Deliverer in the way that David invites us to. We can boast in the Deliverer, but then second, fear the Deliverer. Fear the Deliverer. David goes on to invite the saints to fear the Deliverer, beginning in verses 8 through 10. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste. See. David is not holding up a recipe and saying, read this. He's holding up a spoon and saying, experience this for yourself. When you've seen God work, when you've tasted his goodness, you want others to get in on that same joy. And you, know, you cannot experience God. You cannot know God through someone else's experience of God. You have to know him for yourself. You have to have faith for yourself. As we hear David's call to taste and see that the Lord is good, here uh, along again comes that word blessed that we've seen over the last couple weeks. That word blessed meaning flourishing, happy. A word that describes your best life, the, the good life. According to Psalm 34, the good life is a life of refuge in a good God. The good life is a life of refuge in a good God. So David invites God's people, the saints, to fear this God. Now, that might seem like an odd response to God's goodness. God is good, therefore fear him? I mean, shouldn't it be God is good, therefore love him? Or God is good, therefore praise him? I mean, really? God is good, therefore fear him? What does that mean? Well, first we should recognize that this is not, what this does not mean, it's not like Michael Scott who said, would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. It's not like that. So then, (laughs) a couple of you got that. So then what does it mean to fear the Lord? If it doesn't mean we should be afraid of how much we love him, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, a, a, uh, a more esteemed theologian, Wayne Grudem, puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the desire to avoid God's displeasure. The desire to avoid God's displeasure. We all live in fear of someone in this sense. Who do you live in fear of? We may live in fear of man. I I don't want anyone to be displeased with me. We may live in fear of self. I don't want to do anything that displeases me. But to fear the Lord is to avoid God's displeasure. Or to put it another way, it's to live every moment acknowledging Him. It's to make every decision by asking, what would please God? It's to live for God's glory. And that is the right fitting response to God's goodness. To live every moment aiming to please God. The God who created us and the God who delivered us. David says that those who live for God's glory like this, who fear the Lord, have no lack. No lack. This reminds us, of course, of Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Paul says in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God gives to his people, all of his people, everything that we need. We have no lack. The young lions might go hungry, but there is nothing good that those who seek the good God are lacking. 
And we'll see that David keeps on coming back to this idea of the blessing for those who fear Yahweh to motivate us to live in the fear of Yahweh. Well, so now that David has commended the fear of the Lord, he offers us instruction in what it looks like to fear the Lord. Starting in verse 11, he says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, so David, what does it look like to live a life that is lived to avoid God's displeasure. What does it look like to live this life of fearing the Lord? Well, look at verses 12 through 14. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what does it look like practically to live for God's glory? Uh, David gives instruction to us right here. First, according to verse 12, set your eyes on the prize. Life, many days, good. Uh, That's the first instruction he gives us. Set your eyes on the prize. David wants us to know the blessing of living in the fear of the Lord, first and foremost. A life of fearing God ends in nothing less than eternal life and eternal blessing in His presence. Those who fear God get to see His goodness forever. So set your eyes on the prize, the blessing that comes to those who fear the Lord. And then second, Live a life of repentance with your eye on the prize, with that desire for the blessing of God's favor, then live a life of repentance. Put off that which does not please God. Restrain, for instance, your words from sin, as David describes here in verse 13. Uh, Put to death the deeds of the body, as Paul talks about in Romans 8. And put on, in replacing those things, That which does please God. This is what it looks like to live a life of asking what will please God. Put off that which doesn't please God. Put on that which does please God. Do good, as David says here in the psalm. And that includes seeking peace, he says. Hebrews 12, 14 urges us, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is practically what it looks like to live a life of fearing the Lord, seeking to please Him. And then, uh, again, because it it seems that David just wants to keep on reiterating the blessing and, and why it's so good to fear the Lord, he returns again to the blessing, waiting for those who live like this. In verses 15 and 16, he says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So we saw in Psalm 33 last week that 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 phrase, the eyes of the Lord being toward someone or on someone, it's a statement about his favor. And so David says here that Yahweh's favor is on the righteous. Uh, Now back in Psalm 32, we saw who those righteous are. Uh, And that the righteous are not those who are righteous on their own. They are sinners who are declared righteous through faith in God. But they also then live righteously. And that seems to be the, the emphasis in view here, this idea of the righteous living righteous. Those who have been declared righteous through faith, then living out that righteousness that those are the ones who experience the blessing of the eyes of the Lord being toward them, the favor and blessing of God. Uh, Peter quotes this passage in 1 Peter 3. Uh, let's go ahead and turn there, uh, 1 Peter 3. He gives some helpful um, uh, interpretation in the way that he uses this passage uh, in terms of giving us some practical uh, illustrations of what it looks like to fear the Lord and what really is in view here in Psalm 34. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you 
have unity of mind. So he's going to start with just some things that we, in light of Psalm 34, would understand to just be things that would please the Lord. What does it look like to fear the Lord? What does it look like to avoid his displeasure? Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Remember, let the humble hear and be glad. First uh, Peter 3, verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Again, uh, keep your mouth free from deceit. Uh, keep your mouth free from evil words, as we saw in, in Psalm 34. Uh, on the contrary, again, put off and put on, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. There's that blessing again, that promised reward for those who live in a way that pleases God, that live in the fear of the Lord. And then he, he, he gets to the basis of what he's saying in verse 10, for Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So Peter's understanding of Psalm 34 comes out in uh, the ideas that he has right before and right after his quotation. And he helps us to kind of see and live in color what it looks like to live with this mindset of keeping our eyes on the blessing, desiring to love life and see good days, and then practically living out, keeping our tongues from evil and turning away from evil and doing good, seeking peace. Those who live in the fear of the Lord practically in these ways obtain the blessing of being heard by Yahweh like David was, of having his favor on them. But as we read in these verses, on the other hand, the face of Yahweh is against those who do evil. And so Peter's invitation David's invitation is to choose in light of this, in light of the blessing for those who fear the Lord, in light of the lack of blessing, the lack of favor for those who don't fear the Lord. It's an invitation to come and live in the fear of the Lord. Live in a way that seeks not to displease Him. Live in a way that, to use Peter's language, that's zealous for good, zealous to please God, so that we might obtain God's blessing. Fear the deliverer. Aim to please the deliverer. So that's two ways we can glorify the deliverer. We boast in the deliverer. We fear the deliverer. But then finally, trust the deliverer. Trust the deliverer. Let's turn back to Psalm 34. David goes on to further describe that blessing for those who fear Yahweh in verses 17 and 18. He says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Yahweh hears his people and he delivers them. Just like in verse 6, David told us that Yahweh heard him and delivered him. The experience that David as an individual knew and got to experience, that is what he wants for all of God's people. And he says, the same God who heard me and delivered me hears you if you belong to him and will deliver you. This is the deliverance that David wants us to experience but as you hear about this God in heaven who hears our prayers, and even as you hear about him sending these angels to go and serve on his behalf, to serve his people, don't think that God is distant and impersonal as he does that. No, God is near, we're told. David wants us to know Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted. When your heart is broken, your Father is near you. He is close. 
He saves the crushed in spirit. This is a God we can trust with our pain. It's a God we can trust with our lives. David closes this psalm meditating on the affliction that the righteous experience. Look at verse 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The righteous, the saints, God's people do not get a pass on the suffering of this world. In fact, those who follow Christ have many afflictions. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Our hope, if we trust in Christ, our hope is not that we will avoid afflictions. If anyone ever tells you, hey, come trust in Jesus so that your life will get easier, don't believe them. It's a lie. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. That's not our hope when we come to Christ, that we will avoid afflictions. Instead, our hope in Christ is that He will deliver us out of every single affliction that we face. Did you notice how many times He said in Psalm 34 that He will deliver us out of all afflictions? That is the hope that we have in Christ. Not avoiding afflictions, but being delivered out of affliction. Why can we have that hope? Why can we hope that we will be delivered out of all afflictions? Well, it's because our king was afflicted to the point of death, yet he was delivered to eternal life in his resurrection. Where do I get that from Psalm 34? Well, David's message here in Psalm 34 is that they could count on Yahweh's deliverance for them because he, the individual king, had been delivered. He, the individual, had experienced this deliverance, deliverance that meant the difference. Remember, at that time, King Saul was on the throne. God had made a promise that David would reign, and he had not yet fulfilled that promise. And so David is on this path toward taking the throne as God promised. And here was King Achish, who seemingly was a threat to the king taking the throne. But God proved himself faithful, delivering him, and not only delivering David and fulfilling a promise to David, but fulfilling the promises that he made to his people through David and about David that would bless the whole nation of Israel and all of God's people who would be blessed through the offspring of David. So David's message to Israel was that just like God, or because God had delivered him as the individual king, this meant an impact on all of God's people. They could count on God's deliverance because the king had been delivered. David had been delivered. We've seen over and over in the Psalms, the success of the nation was bound up in the individual king. His victory meant the nation's victory. His deliverance was the nation's deliverance. And likewise, we as God's people today can count on Yahweh's deliverance for ourselves because the son of David, King Jesus Christ, has been delivered from his afflictions. Did you notice that here in verse 19, David switched to the singular when he started talking about the righteous. He says the righteous in verse 19, and he's not talking about a group. The righteous is an individual, the anointed king. And it becomes even clearer that we should keep Christ in mind when we look at verse 20. He keeps all his bones Not one of them is broken. So this is a promise that the righteous one, uh, that the righteous one's bones would not be broken. And this uh, phrase is an echo of a previous passage of Scripture. It's an echo of the instructions that Yahweh gave about the Passover lamb. He said in Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in one house, You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. The redemption of the people of Israel was bound up in their substitute, the Passover lamb. And David uses that language to describe how he was delivered. 
Because ultimately, this was pointing forward to how this ultimately would be fulfilled in the death of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Turn with me to John chapter 19. John 19, starting in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him, but... When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. David was delivered and tells the people of God, listen to my testimony so that you can be delivered. John sees his king fulfilling Scripture, fulfilling Psalm 34, and he says, listen, listen to me, listen to my testimony so that you can have deliverance because of what Jesus has done. Even as we look to the cross in John 19, we we just need to remember again, followers of Christ, this shows us followers of Christ, this Christ on the cross The the ones who follow him do not get a pass on the suffering of this world. Again, we follow an afflicted Lord. If our Lord is an afflicted Lord, we are going to be his afflicted followers. But just notice how Jesus, the, the righteous one, his example of being afflicted gives such hope for his righteous people in our affliction. Jesus suffered unthinkable affliction on the cross. But just hear that verse again. Not one of his bones will be broken. God breathed those out through the pen of David thousands of years before, or it's not thousands, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. And then they were fulfilled in detail on the cross. And that just demonstrates that God was one hundred percent in control of the affliction Jesus experienced. He did not suffer one more thing or one less thing than God intended. Likewise, you and I can have confidence in our affliction. No one can afflict us beyond exactly what God intends and what God has designed for his glory and our good. And furthermore, just like Jesus was delivered from his afflictions through his resurrection, we can be confident that he will ultimately deliver us to eternal life as well. We will experience affliction just like our Lord, but we will be delivered just like our Lord. The wicked's experience of affliction is quite different. If you look back at Psalm 34 and verse 21, the wicked experience affliction too, but verse 21 says, affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Righteous and wicked both experience affliction, but unlike the righteous, the wicked do not experience deliverance from their affliction. No, the wicked are slain 
by affliction. Their affliction ultimately ends not in deliverance, but in condemnation. In contrast, consider how Yahweh treats the righteous in verse 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Yahweh redeems his people. You know, God redeemed his people that night of the first Passover. And just the same, God redeems all who trust in Jesus, the Lamb of God. And the redeemed are not condemned. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because when Jesus Christ died as the Passover lamb, he was condemned in the place of wicked people like you and me. Now, any of the wicked, like you and me, who place refuge in him, who take refuge in him, will not be condemned, but redeemed. Will be declared righteous, will be called saints, will be freed to live righteously in fear of the Lord as his servants. We'll be delivered out of our affliction when we go to be with our king and will experience eternal life together with the Lord. So trust the deliverer. Trust the deliverer. In your suffering, trust that God is near. He hears you. He holds your broken heart in his hands. Trust him with your crushed spirit, even in your suffering. In your suffering, trust that God is in control. Nothing will ever touch you that is not designed and intended by God for your good and his glory. Trust the God who did not let a single one of Christ's bones be broken. The God who was sovereign over that moment on the cross is the God who is sovereign over your suffering. Trust that he is in control. And trust that God will deliver you in your suffering. Trust that God will deliver you. Now, that's not a promise that he'll deliver you on this side of eternity. It's not a promise that if you just trust hard enough or have enough faith or pray long enough or pray the right way that all of your pain will go away, all your suffering will go away. That's not the promise of deliverance. But know this, if you are in Christ, your suffering will not end in condemnation. God has already exhausted his condemnation at the cross on the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. God may or may not relieve your pain in this life, but in the end, because of Christ, he will deliver you out of all affliction. He will deliver you out of all your troubles. He will deliver you out of all the brokenness of this life. He will deliver you out of all your affliction. So trust the God who redeems the life of his servants. May we be so moved by God's deliverance that we live our life to glorify the deliverer. May we boast in the God who hears us when we cry and delivers us. May we fear the God whose ears hear the cry of the righteous. May we trust the God who delivers the righteous out of all afflictions. And in light of how good this deliverer is, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Pray with me. Father, we've tasted and seen that you are good. So Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to boast in you. We want to fear you. We want to trust you. Lord, the good life is a life where we take refuge in you. Lord, I pray that as we have heard David's testimony of deliverance, as we've seen Jesus's deliverance, as we've seen your work, your goodness on display, Lord, I pray that those who have heard this word today have tasted and seen that you are good. 
Lord, that if, if, if there is someone who has been desperate to see you and to taste your goodness, who has been starving for you to reveal yourself, Lord, I pray that you would show through the power of your word and the activity of your Holy Spirit, show them, open their eyes, refresh their souls with a taste and a sight of how good you are. Lord, for those who are finding their boast in anything else, Lord, I pray that you would move in their hearts to boast in you. Lord, for those who would rather be silent, Lord, I pray that you would open their mouths, uh, Lord, that the humble would hear and be glad as they boast in the Lord. Lord, I pray that for those who are in bondage to fear of themselves or fear of man, that you would free them to a life of fearing you and pleasing you alone. Lord, I pray that for those who are suffering and those who will suffer, that they would run to no other refuge but you, but they would trust in you as the deliverer and that they would trust in you while they wait for deliverance. they would trust that even when the deliverance hasn't come yet that you are still a good God and nothing is touching their life that you do not intend for their good to make them like Christ for your glory Lord you are the God who did not let a single one of Jesus's bones be broken Lord there is nothing that's happening in our lives that you do not intend for your glory and for our good. Lord, I pray that we would trust that and find joy in you and boast in you and magnify you and exult in you in the waiting, in the suffering. You are a good God. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.